Hello, and welcome to another edition of Coffee with Comrades, a podcast discussing current events, theory, and action through a radical lens. Greetings and salutations, and welcome to the 136th episode of Coffee with Comrades. I am thrilled to bring you this special collaboration with our Channel Zero Network friends and colleagues, 12 Rules for What? In this edition of the program, Sam, Alex, and I discuss the current iterations of reactionary politics, unpack the fascist imaginary, discuss ways to cope with the horrors of staring into the abyssal ugliness of far-right politics, and take some time to chat about Alex and Sam's new book, The Post-Internet Far-Right, out soon from Dog Section Press. The three of us had a lovely conversation, and I hope you'll enjoy it as much as we did. But before we get there, a couple quick announcements. As longtime listeners of Coffee with Comrades no doubt know by now, this is a show made by a worker for workers. If you dig this podcast, if the conversations and dialogues, discussions and asides with musicians, artists, community organizers, scholars, and revolutionaries resonate with you, please consider supporting this program with a monthly donation by going to www.patreon.com forward slash coffee with comrades. For just a dollar a month, you can unlock exclusive access to our Coffee with Comrades Discord channel, enjoy early access to episodes just like this one, and rest easy in the knowledge that your monthly contribution is going to support the creation of radical, independent media. Not in a position to support the podcast right now financially? No worries. If enjoying Coffee with Comrades is part of your weekly schedule, you can still help us out by retweeting or reposting the show, leaving us a review on Apple Podcasts, or, most importantly, you can tell your friends and comrades about this program. We don't pay to advertise the show, and we don't accept advertisements from third parties, so word of mouth is really the only way that people discover this independent media project. Speaking of DIY media, Coffee with Comrades and our guests today in 12 Rules for What are both a part of the Channel Zero Network, an international repository of anarchist podcasts, radio shows, and entertainment. You can check out the CZN shows wherever you get your podcasts. In the meantime, enjoy this jingle from some of our CZN affiliates. Are you tired of listening to Western experts talking how the world works? Is another portion of liberal analysis of the uprising makes you fall asleep? Well, then check Elephant in the Room, an anarchist radio show from European Dresden, where we interview activists who are participating in struggles around the world. Elephant in the Room is a proud member of Channel Zero Network. You can find our show on your favorite podcast platforms, CZN website, or somewhere on the internet. From activists? For activists. All right, y'all, I think that about does it for today. It brings me great pleasure to share with you episode 136 of Coffee with Comrades, the post-internet far right, featuring 12 rules for what? We're 
looking at all this content from the far right and not like feel your brain rotting out of your ears because this is my struggle whenever I've like engaged in like anti-fascist research is that it, it literally hurts my brain to engage with it and so I'm curious how do you like what methods of self-care and like you know you know making sure that you don't uh lose your mind staring into the abyssal horror that is the uh Lovecraftian reactionary right. How, how do you survive that shit? I love the description of Lovecraftian. Uh, yeah, I mean, it is. Great. I mean, Lovecraft was a fash, so oh, for you know, sure. it, yeah, yeah. it checks out. I think, I mean, for me, uh, for me, not very well. <laughs> I think, <laughs> especially in this kind of like year we've had of, yeah. of the pandemic as well, it's like I haven't had any uh, extracurricular activities to, to be, you know, distracting myself with. It's either been in isolation or lockdown, nothing's going on. The only thing we've got is walking around uh, outside. Um, so occasionally I've had to kind of catch myself. I kind of feel myself kind of uh, falling into the patterns of, uh, patterns of speech that the far right use. Um, not like in any major racist way or anything, but you know, just sure, sure. thinking things in, in kind of an alpha beta way, for example, which is horrendously reactionary. Um, and so you do that for like a day and then you kind of think, oh shit, that's kind of like <laughs> awful. Let's not do that. Take yourself back, decompress. Let's not read this for a little bit. Um, but like, I think as, we, as you go on as well, you kind of get well practiced at like, just kind of like reading it, um, in third person almost. Sure. So not, not experiencing the emotions you're meant to feel when you consume the content. You're kind of taking one step back, which I think is, it, it's a skill more than anything and i think we've we've both gotten better at that skill uh, as we've gone on yeah that makes yeah, perfect sense really, really important points. I, I would say the first thing i mean that i've uh, the way way i've kind of coped is by having alex as well like who i can right. just discuss this with it's very useful to be doing this in a twosome um and so a lot of the the humor and the absurdity comes through when we discuss it you know um so it's not just that there's this continual um thing on the alt-right or the far right let's be more kind of general, um, of saying the worst possible thing. There definitely is that stuff. But there's also just these, these minuscule um, tendencies within the, the grand mass of the far right, which are just so absurd, so ridiculous, that they're almost like, they're actually really like funny to consider and actually really right. funny to engage. <laughs> and, and I think in some ways you have to think that, yes, there is this enormous cultural thing here the the, the, far, the the far right which is which is in many ways very ugly and very and and really um abhorrent in lots of ways and if it was ever allowed to expand and become um powerful in the way it was you know has been historically um it would be like genuinely calamitous for you know millions of people um but at the same time it's just not there yet and it's not there right now and right. knowing that you in some sense that the 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 fight over the very long term, not over the short term, the fight over the very long term is that we consistently win. Um, and we consistently beat the far right. Um, they have their moments of flaring up, but then they're always kind of squashed down again, I think. And so I'm just kind of 
the main thing that keeps me going is just optimism. Um, that over the very long time, not, not over the short term, but we, we generally win. The other thing I would say is that um, it's really good to write, it's really good to research with a very clear purpose. Um, that you know exactly what you're looking for and you find it or you don't find it, right? You kind of run little tests. Am I going to find this kind of discourse in this thing right now um, after this event has happened? Or am I just not gonna find it? And then you, you run the test, you find out, did you find the thing? And then if you found it, then fine. And if you didn't find it, fine. But either way, you get out very quickly and you just don't do the type of doom scrolling where you just like endlessly go through, you know, kind of a hundred pages of, um, you know, HN or something like that. I, that. That's really the great. Yeah, I can imagine it would be so easy to just like fall into this abyss where you're like, fuck, 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 I can't get out. I can't get out. Like, you know, like it's almost like watching like a car crash, you know, or like a like some kind of like horrific accident in slow motion. And then you can't it, it, it becomes difficult to like pull yourself out. Um, I don't know what it is about us as humans that like we have that fixation, you know, um, that we like have that inclination to like stare at an atrocity. Um, I think you could look at it in a, in a positive way or a, or a negative way, but I, I definitely can see how that could become a temptation with um, doing like the type of research that y'all do on the far right. I mean, and the other thing to consider is a lot of this stuff is um, is really effective. Um, if you're in like a really dark place or you're feeling super alienated, as a lot of people have been doing, and you're reading a lot of this stuff, no matter what your political positioning is or like what your like ideals are, you can quite, like you said, fall into the abyss really easily. So yeah, I think, yeah, the other thing that Sam said, which was having someone else to like talk about the content um, with is absolutely key. Like. I would I would say anyone who's like researching this stuff like on their own without talking to anyone, you should get a buddy basically because it's really really important. That makes perfect sense. Well, on today's program of Coffee with Comrades, uh, we are doing a special collaboration with our Channel Zero Network friends in Twelve Rules for What. Sam and Alex, welcome on the program. How are y'all doing today? Yeah, I'm doing well, thank you. Good to be here. I'm really good. I'm very hot in this room now. <laughs> There's a church immediately outside and I shut the window because they were ringing the bells and now it's just, it's, it's maybe, <laughs> it's going up to 28, 29 in this room. So I'm, I'm maybe if I say anything completely ridiculous, let's, let's blame it on the heat. I think that's my... <laughs> yeah, I had a, uh, I had a period where I was living in this tiny little apartment um, recording and all we had was like one of those... Um, like mounted like window mounted ac units and i lived in florida at the time while i was uh doing the podcast and so i'd have to turn off the ac unit i'd have to turn off the fan overhead so that like there wasn't background noise while i was recording and i, I would literally have to shower afterwards because it was so fucking filthy i was just like stewing in my own sweat it was awful it was miserable and uh and and i hated it so i i understand uh your struggle sam and uh my my heart goes out to you um but I, i'm i'm really psyched to 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 get into this discussion of y'all's new book um the post-internet far right uh but before we you know dive into the conversation about the, the book I wanted um, to, to get y'all to talk a little bit about 12 Rules for What, just in case, you know, listeners haven't heard of, of the program before. Um, what is 12 Rules for What and and what is the podcast about and, and what do y'all do? Well, um, it's, a, it's, a, it's a podcast about the far right. Um, and we obviously were tackling things from the perspective of the radical left, specifically the you know libertarian left. I'm an anarchist and 
Sam is some kind of libertarian communist. He's gonna he's gonna cringe at that, I think. No, that's that's more or less accurate. That's okay, right. great. I got it right. Um, and today, tomorrow it'll be something else. But uh, <laughs> <laughs> listen, if you're not like constantly interrogating your own political like orientation and values and ideological convictions, then you're probably doing something wrong. Absolutely. Yeah. And what we were trying to do, I suppose, is is kind of. Um, look under the hood of the far right, as it were, kind of like see what's going on uh, beneath the kind of very obvious surface. Um, oftentimes we found, at least in the UK context, which is obviously what we're most familiar with, is people have one very uh, rigid and set view of what a fascist is or what someone on the far right is. And they either, or they kind of expand that view to encompass basically anyone um, who they are opposed to. And we think both of these um, positions are kind of wrong. You know, like the far right is always changing. There's tensions, there's contradictions. We need to, we need to understand this before we can oppose it in many ways. Yeah, totally. I, I, I mean, the name comes from Jordan Peterson's book, obviously, Torples for Life. Um, and, the, the, and a combination of that with the uh, Lil John song, <laughs> Turn Down For What. So uh, maybe that's not uh, entirely obvious, but it is our theme music. So if you haven't listened to the podcast, then uh, you will hear that. Um, the name is Alex. It's also the advertisement for the, the CZN jingle, which is fucking fantastic. Because it always like I, it always makes me giggle whenever I either listen to y'all's show or whenever I hear the podcast uh, jingle and other CZN programs. Because I'm like, oh shit, it's going to do the thing. And then it does. It does the thing, and it's funny. <laughs> 12 rules. All, all jingles need, like, a really solid drop. Do you know what I mean? They, like, they do. They fucking do. You're absolutely right. I'm, I, I've been meaning to revisit the uh, Coffee with Comrades jingle. I like to switch it up every year so that it's fresh, but I, I have to keep that in mind, you know? Uh, I have to find a, a song with a good fucking drop. <laughs> yeah, EDM with Comrades. Oh, uh, uh, <laughs> MDMA with comrades, maybe. Uh, there it is. <laughs> yeah. The other thing to say about, about the project is that it, it started as a podcast. And we did uh, a whole bunch of things that were about particular groups on the far right. So in the European far right, there was a group called Generation Identity, which were a big deal. And they're less a big deal now. Um, and there were groups uh, that were kind of forming in the UK as well at that time. There was a uh, thing called the DFLA and the FLA and so on, which are basically large street movements. And just in those two examples, we have very, very different tendencies on the far right. So the generation entity are what's called identitarians, um, as it, their name suggests. And they are um, essentially youth movements um, that were, in the past, attached to French and uh, European far right parties and have then kind of moved away into this stunt-based activism. And if you're thinking about what you're going to do as an anti-fascist against the stunt, and against the kind of a banner drop or against the kind of a, in some ways like a media spectacle, like what generation entity were really good at is media spectacle. If you think about what you're going to do against that versus what you're going to do against these large, broadly um, middle-aged men, street movements that were <laughs> right. formed in the UK, like the FLA and the DFLA and before that the EDL, which is the English Defence League. Um, if you're thinking about what you're going to do, you're going to do totally different things, hopefully. And so it's not just that um, the far right is differentiated inside itself or that there are different strands in the far right, but that the anti-fascist response has to be fundamentally different. Um, and in the UK now, we're moving into a very different terrain where the DFLA and the FLA kind of got, um, they kind of got their ass kicked by the police. So this happened in 2020. There was a big 
thing called the Statues Defenders uh, demo where people were um, protesting against um, the defacing of the Churchill statue in uh, central London. Which is fucking awesome, for the record. Yeah. Very funny, yeah. very cool and good. <laughs> the facing, sta- the facing statues of of uh, historically like terrible humans is very cool and awesome. And oh yeah, I sure. Want to see more totally. of it. Yeah. The interesting thing about the Churchill statue is that it's it's actually really indicative of the of the moment of the like, kind of the football casual. Uh, sorry, uh, casuals are like uh, football ultra. Uh, they're really they love their football clubs and they're going to go out and fight other people who love their football clubs too. That's the kind of football casuals um anyway Churchill's statue has been defaced defaced quite a lot because politics a lot of like public politics happens in parliament square Churchill's statue is there everyone hates Churchill there's the <laughs> most most famous example of the Churchill's defacement is uh in May day 2001 when uh an anarchist um climbed to the top and put a a, a bit of grass made it made it into a Mexican a bit of the turf <laughs> And kind of spread it up, and <laughs> I believe so he did go to prison for that. But it was it got totally a lot of, worth it. Totally, totally lot, fucking worth it. <laughs> <definitely>. <laughs> anyway, but yeah, so, so I think yeah. I think that, that that's what was happening fairly recently. But now we've kind of we've like turned the corner, and there's a there's a new group called Patriotic Alternative, and they are not going to do stunts, or they do kind of some stunts. They're not going to do big street movements. They're going to do community organizing this kind of thing and again now the anti-fascist movement needs to like change gears again needs to be doing something different again so we're essentially trying to provide enough information for the anti-fascist movement that it knows how to strategically orient itself against the groups as they actually stand and not against the previous set of groups which is basically what anti-fascism tends to do yeah, no, totally. And and I've always really appreciated that orientation um, in 12 Rules for What of like, you know, intentionally trying to think strategically about the current moment that we are in. Um, and, and so I wanted to kind of pivot by talking about exactly that, right? Like we are in, you know, a very different moment than we were in five years ago. Um, and, and I think, you know, it's, it's, it is fair to say, though, that over these past five years, give or take, we've seen... Uh, concurrent waves of of fascist and proto-fascist uh, violence, of of far-right street movements, of proto-fascist elected leaders, and militant organizing both on and off the internet from the far-right. And I think, you know, a lot of people, perhaps understandably, breathed like a collective sigh of relief, for instance, when Donald Trump uh, was deposed in the 2020 election cycle and was replaced by Joe Biden, right? Like, even if folks didn't think that uh, Joe Biden was uh, the greatest thing since sliced bread. Uh, the thinking goes, you know, at least he's not Trump. And, you know, I think that that is a premature collective sigh of relief. Um, and I was wondering if, if y'all agree. And, and, and if you do, um, what are some of the vectors uh, of, of how the far right is, is kind of currently reconstituating itself uh, that we should be aware of um, and um, vigilant against? So I think there's 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 a few frames you can look at this in. There's the much shorter frame, and then there's the the longer frame. To take the shorter frame, um, the, I think that what we've seen is that the um, the QAnon movement, which has spread out of America into Germany and into the UK as well, has kind of proven that it has longevity after Trump. Even though the the, the subject of their kind of conspiracy has been deposed, he's not the president anymore. They can rumble on, and in many ways, that is because their their conspiracy is not really particularly novel. You know, the kind of the idea of a secret elite of 
um, evil demonic beings slaughtering children is goes back to very very old very anti-Semitic conspiracies, um, and so we I think QAnon can, is perfectly able to um, move past the fact that no Q drops anymore, move past the fact that Trump's likely going to fade away um, unless he obviously runs, but I, I I don't think that's particularly likely. In the longer term, of course, we have to consider that we have an ongoing climate crisis, which is exacerbating uh, tensions and uh, increasing um, misery in the world generally, and which will produce um, newer, more interesting, but also much more terrible fascist and far-right uh, movements in the future. Um, so I don't think we have anything to be complacent about. I, I'm going to take a slightly different tack. Um... I don't, not that I think we have something to be complacent about. Not that I think we should we should give up on the whole thing. Uh, that's totally not my my thoughts here. But um, there are a couple of things I think that have shifted since Trump, and this is I'm I'm, gonna, I'm, I'm spitballing here. So uh, let's uh, <laughs> let's see whether or not I say I'll end up saying something stupid. Um, Remember, listener, uh, you know, <laughs> we're is, we're in a, a baking room at the moment, so, so Sam is not entirely responsible for what may or may not come out of his mouth. <laughs> Thank you very much. It's, it's a, that's a really good, um, you know, um, what's it called? Uh, oh, I can't even remember the name for that kind of thing. That's disclaimer. It's a great disclaimer. Um, I should have one of wow, those. you really are far gone, Sam. <laughs> I, should have one, I should have that on my uh, on my T-shirt, maybe. Um, I'm not responsible for whatever my kind of. Oh, I don't know. <laughs> And then I could have a kind of a bit like I could swap out the excuse depending on the. Yeah. <laughs> so one thing to say is that the far right is not the only thing that politics is about, um, and that being on this kind of continual war footing, being like there's a fascist in the house, there's a fascist in the White House, there's a fascist over here, there's a fascist in the streets, there's a fascist continuously will burn you out. And I'm not saying give up on politics, but I am saying people should be able to relax. And. Like, I think it's really important that we don't have this kind of overwhelmingly intense sense of urgency all the time. Um, not just because uh, that will be catastrophic in the long run, but because it will actually prevent us from doing what Alex was saying, which is strategizing in the long term. I think we need to have, as a movement, moments where we just say, okay, well, um, now we can ratchet it down a bit. Um, and I think this is probably one of those moments. I. I think that what's happened, I mean, I wouldn't speak for the US, but for, for my kind of, from my outsider kind of view, uh, I would say that what seems to have happened is that we've moved back to a situation that we were kind of in, in like 2010, when we had the Tea Party, right? The Tea Party is probably something like a foreign movement in the US. And I would say that, 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 that QAnon seems to have transformed into something like that. If you go to these QAnon rallies, and I haven't been to one myself, but from what I hear about the QAnon rallies, people are mostly saying not things like they've taking the adrenochrome they're mostly saying things like we need to get into school boards so we can stop critical race theory or we need to get into local government so that we can um you know like uh, change local i don't know what we have in america bylaws whatever the american right. equivalent of bylaws is <laughs> uh, <laughs> we, we need to get these kind of like local government stuff done and in some ways that's a real decline from QAnon. um but in other words, it seems like a quite a natural transformation. And I'm not sure that anti-fascism, as it was practiced during the Trump era, is a particularly effective way of countering that kind of stuff. And so I would say that the kind of the... People, yeah, people should need some time to decompress, to take stock of the situation, because, 
And this is the way in which I'm incredibly pessimistic. As exactly Alex says, um, we're heading into uh, a century of climate breakdown. That's just going to happen. Um, and there's nothing to stop it. It's not going to be stopped. And that's going to require a lot of dedicated anti-fascism. So in 2020, in 2021, sorry, 2021, not 2020, maybe even 2022, <laughs> have a momentary break. I would suggest that obviously that's uh, that's a bit too probably going a bit too far. No, I mean I think it's a it's a it's a worthwhile point. You know, is that the train does shift. You know, and, and that um, I think you're onto something there. That that having that constant war mentality can become corrosive if it is purely always looking for uh, another um, target you know um, I think that it's it's really important that we you know can continue to stay like militant and stay vigilant but at the same time I also think that um, you know too much of that can can turn into some really um, unnecessarily like toxic posturing and like you know un, 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 unwarranted and unnecessary aggression um which is entirely unproductive yes toxic posturing is exactly what i would what i would militate against and i would warn against i think that's a really perfect way of putting it yeah for sure well it's interesting because you y'all brought up um qanon and and obviously like this you know conspiracy has uh really been a subject which the far right uh first in the United States, but now growing uh, to an international scale has, has really sunk its fangs into. And, and I, I'm really fascinated by the way that conspiracies tend to take root in the fascist imaginary. Because from, from my understanding, it, it seems that from its very inception, fascism has always gravitated towards conspiracies in order to justify the atrocities that it commits. I mean, we, we don't have to look any further than the Protocols of the Elders of Zion, for instance. But I, what I think is what's so fascinating about modern-day theories, of uh, uh, modern-day conspiracy theories, are that fascists end up venerating these uh, patterns and themes that we ha that have like historical roots right um and, and 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 Alex you touched on that a little bit earlier uh, but it's interesting seeing how you know how the ways that it's it's very much the same playbook that they just keep trotting out again and again and again in order to justify their ethno-nationalist kind of position um, and, and so I'm curious, what are some of the uh, historical analogs that y'all see um, connecting and tethering uh, QAnon and, and the conspiracy theories that are currently um, enjoying popularity on the right to uh, historical precedents that have been used in the past? I think what's particularly interesting about QAnon is that in America, for uh, since the founding of America, there has been a rich conspiracy culture. A conspiracy about Catholics, conspiracies about Freemasons, conspiracies about um, indigenous people, uh, conspiracies about uh, the Irish, <laughs> conspiracies about, you know, all these kind of things that seem like somewhat kind of baffling today, like they would be conspiracies. And of course, anti-Semitism, like all these, all, pretty much all the time, anti-Semitism. Um, and in the 1990s, and through to kind of um, uh, the Obama era, it really seemed to me, um, and this is again from an outside standpoint, um, that people like Alex Jones were very compelling because they were against the state, they were outside the state, and they actually thought the state was deeply corrupt, and they were compelling not just therefore to 
people who were on the far right, who had ethno-nationalist beliefs, ethno-nationalist beliefs, but people who had a critique of power, had a critique of the state, thought that the state was should not rule over our lives, like I do, <laughs> uh, but who had a really poor grasp of what the state actually consisted of. So had a, essentially conspiratorial belief. And then with QAnon, that all changes. So QAnon is, is, a, is a very interesting kind of conspiracy because QAnon, although it has the same kind of themes again and again and again and again and again as previous far-right conspiracies, is a conspiracy that aligns itself with the state, right? Like QAnoners believe that they are in fact a wing of the state. <laughs> so in, so we have this kind of perverse transformation where those who are most ardently against all forms of state intervention into life, apart from maybe, you know, actual leftist anarchists, those people who were conspiracy theorists suddenly became like the most committed authoritarians. <laughs> mm-hmm. And this is a really astonishing transformation because it, it's the way in which conspiracy is utilized or um, yeah, kind of used by the state to do something very particular, which is to um, kind of maintain state power. And that's a, really, uh, that's a really worrying combination. And I would say that for the future, at least, I don't know about exactly about now, but for the future, at least, I would say that this is the thing we should watch out for which is conspiracies that are not against the state or against the new world order or whatever kind of like nonsense you want to conjure up, but actually in favor of state power in its most like brutal, unaccountable ways. You know, the QAnon fantasy is about military intelligence, right? Whatever military intelligence is supposed to be, it's not a democratically accountable institution. That's the point. And so like the veneration of this is where like, I think it becomes um, really worrying. I think actually, Another thing to emphasise with these conspiracies, and a thread we can see throughout, is often um, how conspiracies are used as a rhetorical tool more than like a, a way of structuring belief. Um, so there's this really good episode I listened to recently of this podcast called Behind the Bastards, which is very popular, um, and everyone, I've, lots of people listen to it. And it's basically talking about how the Nazis used the Protocols of the Elders of Zion. Um, um, they basically in their correspondence admitted it was not true, it was a forgery, and yet recognised the power that it had to uh, appeal to their base and their masses. Um, and it was used very forcefully in across um, their publications. And in the same way we see um, similar conspiracies used as a tool to organise for, for white supremacy and for um, anti-immigration, border uh, policing. So the biggest, apart from QAnon, I, I would say the biggest Conspiracy on the far right today is called the Great Replacement, um, which is a, one espoused particularly by identitarians, but basically a lot of the far right and the fascist movements indulge in in it in one form or another. For for just for listeners who aren't aware, uh, Alex, can you <clears throat> kind of explain just like the elevator pitch of what that conspiracy is? Because I think a lot of folks who who are listening to this podcast might have heard of that in passing, but probably don't know exactly what the Great Replacement conspiracy theory is. So the Great Replacement, to put it simply, is that um, because of immigration, mass immigration of non-white people into predominantly white countries, um, and here they would include the U.S. Um, obviously, Indigenous Americans don't count. Um, Europe, Australia, again, indigenous Australians don't count, um, that white people become a minority and will eventually be replaced. And there's many different kind of variations on this. Sometimes it's Muslims, sometimes it's Muslims in collusion with each other, um, sometimes it's Muslims as directed by Jews, sometimes um, it's just a simple matter of birth rates and demographics, which is the kind of view that uh, the Christchurch shooter expressed. 
Um, there's lots of different tweaks that are made to it. Um, oftentimes it's used to um, kind of reinforce or advocate for much harsher, much more militarised border policing, uh, particularly on the borders of the EU, uh, the Mediterranean, the Turkish kind of uh, border. Or Fortress uh, Europe. Fortress Europe, or of course, um, you know, build the wall uh, mm -hmm. uh, at the southern US border as well. Yeah, that, that, that's really important. The, the kind of the tweaking is really important because it allows the Great Replacement to become this kind of um, common currency across the far right. So you can be like, oh, which variant of the Great Replacement do you believe in? Oh, I believe it's the Jews. Oh, I don't believe it's the Jews, but I do believe that it's the Muslims working in cahoots with each other. Oh, no, I don't believe it's the Muslims working in cahoots. I believe it's the Mexicans and the Muslims. So, you know, this, this kind of like, the, 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 because it's kind of, they're all so kind of similar, they can kind of all fit together. And it doesn't really matter which one you believe in, because of exactly and the thing Alex was saying before, which is that these are not beliefs. They are kind of almost like rhetorical tools that people use at a particular moment. They're kind of, they're like weapons, rather than like highly developed, um, you know, ideas of how the world actually functions. Just quickly, because I know we could talk about conspiracies for a very, very long time. <laughs> um, but the, the, the way that conspiracies are constructed as a form of knowledge, you know, is, is not, it's not based in kind of material... Uh, evidence, material conditions. It's not like let's observe the world, let's build a theory to uh, to understand what's going on. Um, instead, it's a kind of yes and an improv way of constructing knowledge. Like, uh, what about uh, Hillary Clinton? Maybe she's a demon. Uh, what about the rest of the Democrats? Bill Gates and Aunt too. And it's like kind of anyone who can add in extra fun details will eventually be absorbed into the general conspiracy, which is a super useful thing if you're if your politics in general, which is the, that of the far right in fascism, is not based in the material conditions in which you know we all live, I want, I want to go over to one more thing. Sorry, which is about which no, is yeah, directly to your question, which is the question was like, how do these things relate back to previous conspiracies? And QAnon is really interesting in that it's basically subsumed all of them. Um, so you've got you've got Area Fifty One, <laughs> you've got like um, you know you've got space ancient aliens, you've got archeons, uh, you've got uh, you know sometimes you've got anti-Semitism, you've got all these different kind of like things coming all in. But uh, my the most important one I think is actually uh, the satanic panics of the nineteen eighties, uh, and the reason why that's important is because those are really um, popular with mums. Right, like that's a very that's a kind of stereotype to some extent, but it is a, it is a demographic description that is true. I think there are. These are conspiracies that are about the vulnerability of children and the possibility that you could... And QAnon in the drops, uh, or Q rather, in the drops, never really mentions children. It's a couple of mentions of children. And so this, this like thing about um, the vulnerabilities of children and the kind of the save the children stuff um, is entirely in, in the baking process. It's entirely in this like independent process whereby these drops, these kind of crumbs, are put out into the... Pro into the, the um, uh, they kind of onto onto um, HM and then are um, like made into kind of loaves by these people called the bakers and so on, um, and so it, it's entirely a, pro, a, a kind of just a projection. And so the reason why QAnon is particularly effective is because it is able to amalgamate everything else, like mm -hmm. everything else. And I would say that um, its ability to have something for everyone is its most like terrifying. Uh, prospect or the most terrifying kind of uh, attribute. I couldn't agree more, and and it's one of those things that I think makes this particular moment that we are in this the sort of like era of of post-truth so incredibly alarming is because it's not at all about you know having any sort of like rational um you know here's the evidence that i have and not now i'm moving on to this next conclusion right 
because I have the support for it. It's how does it make me feel, right? Like I think conspiracies so much are about how does it make me feel? And it, it makes people feel, and, and this is the, the thing that I think it's lost in a lot of conversations about conspiracy theories is it makes people feel righteous, right? It makes people feel like they are on the side of justice, right? Because they are trying to fight against demon pedophiles who are uh, selling children into sex trafficking, right? Like it makes them feel like they are on the side of justice in a world where they ostensibly recognize the material conditions is that individually in this deeply individuated society that that we are all in because of capitalism and the, and the way it functions to atomize us from our, our friends and from our families and from our neighbors, um, it makes us feel like we have an individual superpower because suddenly we've seen beyond the veil, right? It makes us feel like we are um, on the side of righteousness. And I think that that's one of the reasons why... Um, it's so difficult to get people to to think about things through a materialist lens sometimes is because it can be so incredibly dispiriting to look soberly at the world and recognize, holy shit, we are fucked. Like how, how on earth are we going to claw our way out of this hole that we've dug ourselves into? Or rather, I should say that the ruling class has dug us into. How, how, how the hell are we going to get out of this thing? And it's much more comforting to, 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 um, have these these uh, figureheads, these leaders, um, whether uh, actual like you know ostensible real people and real um, individuals operating in, in global geopolitics, or these uh, figures like Q, who may or may not even be one person or multiple people, or who who knows, you know. Um, but it's so interesting that like the idea of a conspiracy theory is that it, it, it really, to me, and I think the reason why they have so, so much purchase right now is because they're comforting, right? Like they, they give you the feeling that you are doing something just, um, which I think is like, uh, uniquely repellent because the, the, these, these, these conspiracy theories are so, uh, fucking heinous. And, and, and I, I want to kind of circle back just for, for a moment, if you'll, if you'll indulge me, uh, because Sam, you brought up a really interesting idea, right? About how, you know, in the Obama era and and often predating that, especially like in the like the eighties and the nineties, as I understand it, um, a lot of fascists ha became like anti-statists in in a, in a certain sense. Not all of them, but but a lot of them, right? And it's so deeply concerning the way that fascism has. In, in the far right generally um, has pivoted towards venerating authority. Um, and I think that, that you're absolutely right to trace that through line um, with, with QAnon. Um, and I think that this is especially concerning to us as anti-statists because, you know, the reason why we find uh, fascism so uniquely repellent is because it's diametrically opposed to everything that we value and that we believe in. It, it's it's opposed to liberatory and, and transformational and egalitarian sorts of social organizing where we actually like prefigure what our communities what, what would would look like and and aspire to make that as a society as a whole. And so, what really strikes me about this this veneration right of authority, this fetishization, and and these these cults of personality is that it leads to these different influencers who are sometimes real people and are sometimes like who who fucking knows right um and so I, I say all that because i'm curious you know we're pivoting into a time where uh, a lot of these um these fascist influencers are in the shadows um and 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 you know part of the work that that y'all and so many diligent anti-fascist researchers are doing so brilliantly is is shining a light on these people and so my question for y'all is is who are these fascist influencers in your mind who are the most alarming or concerning right now so right now um 
I'd probably say Nick Fuentes. Um, he's young. It's quite funny. Um, he's really committed. Like, uh, there's also kind of Nick Fuentes is a is a Fed stuff going around like a while ago. But I don't think Nick Fuentes is a Fed. I think Nick Fuentes is really genuinely very ideologically committed. Um, he really means it, and he's also much better at talking than most of the other ones. And he's genuinely quite entertaining to watch, and he's got into himself into a position where he has absorbed not just this kind of anti-statism into the statist stuff but he's also recently been able to articulate a an effective and even convincing to some extent i mean it's conspiratorial and it's nonsense if you know what you're talking about but i think it's convincing if you're uh, if this is the first contact you have with politics it's much for his audience i mean that is he's articulating a critique of capitalism and he's very explicit it's like we have to get rid of this this one thing but what he means by that of course is not a critique of capitalism that we'd recognize from the left but a critique of capitalism that lends to itself to um fascism right which he sees as a kind of anti-capitalist thing and so and the position he's got himself into is where like all the other influencers so you might kind of think about for example lauren southern is kind of doing his bidding right like Lauren Southern is just repeating lines she heard like a few months back from Nick Fuentes. Right. Um, and if you watch recent Lauren Southern videos where she does exactly this thing, what I was saying, criticizing capitalism, she's like, capitalism has, um, you know, forced women into the workplace and that has made the traditional family break apart and so on. Somehow, of course, she gets into that kind of classic um, far right conspiracy where like Marxism and capitalism are the same thing, which is always, <laughs> kind of a, always an amusing like one. Like, how do you how do you figure that? It, um, it's definitely a head scratcher yeah. how they how they twist themselves into that particular mental pretzel. <laughs> but yeah, she, so she says, okay, Marxists gave them the idea that the nuclear family should be destroyed, and then capitalism in the nineteen seventies and nineteen eighties, when women were kind of put into the workplace, capitalism actually carried through and actually destroyed the nuclear family. And so, but all she's doing there. That sounds surprising. Lauren Southern, she's a kind of a kind of quasi white nationalist. You know, like you wouldn't expect her to be making those kinds of points, and she definitely wouldn't have made them three or four years ago. She'd all be out the kind of the free market, you know, this kind of stuff. Um, and yet, like it's Nick Fuentes's influence that is behind this kind of like shift towards what I actually think is a probably a more in the long run, a more potent form of um, fire activity because it can seriously engage with power as it actually is so QAnon is off, off in the cloud it's engaging with these kind of you know these um <laughs> to quote alex jones wizards and warlocks um like this is how he <laughs> described it after he kind of broke with the movement he's like i'm sick of all these wizards and warlocks i've had enough um, which i think is a great quote but anyway um instead of doing that it's talking about power as it actually exists um and so on but again framed in this like deeply anti-semitic way that it's like, okay, well, we, we care about capitalists, we care about the ruling class, we hate them, but only when they're Jewish, and so on. And so in, in some ways it's completely nonsense anti-capitalism, but nevertheless, he's become very effective at distributing exactly that message, and that's a very dangerous and radical message. So Nick Winters. Would you agree, Alex, or would you point to a, a different fasci influencer? Um, so another one, I think Nick Winters is a really uh, important one to for us to keep in our minds. Um, although he's like slowly being egged out of things, off platforms and such like he's got a really dedicated following he's organized these yearly conferences i think he's he's in in it for the long haul i mean another one who's in it for the long haul is obviously uh, mike uh, enoch of the right stuff um which has kind of lost its kind of cultural uh, uh in, ma in many ways its cultural purchase 
in the in the mainstream, and yet it's still uh, similar committed longevity. There's no not like Richard Spencer kind of faded away after he got clocked in the face at the um, <laughs> whatever at the J twenty protest, right? And everyone remixed the punk into a various different ways, and it was hilarious. He's still around, but he's faded back from the prominence where he's had. He's no more like hail Trump, hail our leader, etc. After that incident. Um, with Mike Enoch, he, he, because he's got this platform, he started this new political party, the National Justice Party, which is incidentally based around the kind of version of the Great Replacement Theory. And the, 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 the thing about this party is, of course, is they're making international links. The right stuff is an international anti-Semitic network. And so in the UK, we have a, we have, there's a, a podcast called The Absolute State of Britain, um, which is part of the Right Stuff Network. They have links to the National Justice Party. They cross-pollinate across um, each other's content, much like we're doing right now. Um, <laughs> I was literally just thinking that, bro. I was like, oh, fuck. It's like the it's the fascist version of the CZN. That's horrifying. Right. It is, it is horrifying. And um, they don't... Obviously, they're, they're most famous for having the um, using the echo sound effect for when they're discussing Jewish people mm-hmm. and the brackets, all that kind of stuff. But, you know... Just based on their longevity alone, um, I would say there is a there is an influencer within that network that has potential to for the far right to kind of coagulate around. What do you all think of? Um, I'm just I'm gonna throw out some names just because I'm curious. Uh, what do you all think of Tucker Carlson? Yeah, uh, probably gonna run for president and probably gonna win. You think so? You really think so? I I've heard I've heard that shit like floating around. You think he's gonna try and go for it? Yeah. And he'll crush Kamala Harris. Yikes! That is a terror. That is a terrifying prospect. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. That's, that's <laughs> about, the thing. That's the thing about Tucker is he, he's definitely positioning himself for more than that fuck show that he's got. That's the thing. Like you can't be taking the positions he takes, running the segments he runs, um, without a kind of view to higher office. And for someone like Tucker Carlson, you know, who's from a very wealthy, he's from the you know the elite. The only position that will be good enough for him will be the president. So, yeah, I think he will run. What about uh, what about everybody's um, favorite uh, crying uh, Portlander, um, Andy No? I think that I mean, I, so as I, I don't know what Andy No's been doing because um, I, I find him so reprehensible um, that I, <laughs> I, 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 I he, he just seems like a. You, like an he's the one you can't stomach out of all of them, Sam. <laughs> he's the one yeah. you just can't Somehow, stomach. Yes. Like, because, <laughs> because he doesn't even really seem to believe anything he does seriously. He's just like, oh, this will... He has like a very kind of... It seems to me he has a very kind of constrained view of what he's trying to do. In that he's he's like, oh, um, Islamophobia is, is popular. <laughs> I'll write an article about how like um, Muslims uh, like have these no-go zones where like white people aren't allowed in London. Or whatever he wrote in that article, right? These like no drinking signs. It's like these Sharia law areas of London and Birmingham. Um, oh no, that didn't go very well. Okay, I'll do something else. Oh no, that right. didn't go very well. I'll do something else. He's a grifter. He's a grifter, and he and he, but he's also a very effective grifter. But he's also not a particularly interesting grifter. I don't think. Mm-hmm. Like I think he just talks to whatever the kind of the like the slightly harder edge of the conservative right is doing. Like sure. so, he he'll have something really big about critical race theory in like a week. Right, like as it becomes this kind of this big thing, maybe he already has. I don't know. Like he'll have something really about the the big topic of the day, and he'll do that kind of like you know blockbuster article about it, and he'll do. And but like I don't think that he's got it in him to really seriously push um, 
anything more than just like a, like an obvious kind of grifting stuff. I think he's what he did. Uh, yeah, I think what what he did um, around the Proud Boys and Antibar is reprehensible, but I don't think he's going to be able to repeat that. Um, maybe necessarily in the future, but I mean, as I said, I haven't been following him very closely. I, I think it, I think it is his position as a grifter that is his downfall, and I compare him to someone in the UK as a figure for us, Tommy Robinson, who was leader of the EDL, who kind of branched out into a similar similar role of like making his independent journalism, uh, grifting, raising a lot of money off it, um, constructing these situations in which he was oppressed and he, which he needed to get money. And you could, the, the thing about it is you can really only go back to that well a certain amount of times before people kind of catch on. And people caught on with Tommy Robinson eventually. And Andy you know, can go into the middle of an anti-file protest and get the you know, uh, shit kicked out of him only so many times. And he, can, he can't raise enough money each time. It'll go down each time, basically, is what I'm saying. So he's not... The thing with the difference between Fuentes and... Mike Enoch and him is that the first two are in it for the long haul, and I do, I don't see Andy Noah being in it for the long haul. Well, on that on that note of the long haul, do you think that Tucker Carlson is actually ideologically committed to um, some of the like more far right reactionary positions um, and the, the the guests that he has on the show, or do you think that that is like intentionally? kind of willfully uh, playing to a base that he knows exists uh, in the Republican Party. He seems committed, but I mean, I, I don't I don't watch him regularly. Um, I would say maybe the person who um, is uh, best compared to um, Tucker Carlson is probably Madison Grant, um, who is this kind of American patrician, similar kind of elite stock. You know, his, his parents came over on... Uh, What's that famous ship you have? <laughs> the Mayweather? Is that, a, is that it? Um, in like 16, 1610 or something like this, you know, like really at the beginning. Oh, the Mayflower. Mayflower. Oh, that, so, May... okay, so original colonizers. Yeah, All original right, colonizers. let's go. And, and he was like, okay, this is, these. Th my family has been here since then and we've been rich since then. You know, we, we, we lived in New York when it was called New Amsterdam, I think. Like, we, yeah, we, we lived in New York before it was New York. And, you know, this kind of thing. So the... Um, and he influences politics in the 1910s and 1920s. He's very influential in setting up eugenics society networks. Mm -hmm. um, he's very interested in national park construction. He's kind of a naturalist. Um, he's influenced eventually by the Theodore Roosevelt uh, in the construction of the national park system. And most importantly for what we're talking about, he's, he's influential over the 1924 um, Immigration Restriction Act. So he, which basically is the, the, the Immigration Restriction Act that says no more Asians, no more, Asians to, no more Asian migration to the US and sets quotas um, for who can migrate based on, for Europeans, based on the 1890 census. That means basically no Italians, no Greeks, no Jews. Um, and this is, a, this is, he understands as a very like explicit kind of national defense policy. He's like, we will defend our country from these people. And not that Tucker Carlson is kind of a quietist or like kind of disappears into the shadows like Madison Grant does. Madison Grant was not an active campaigning politician. He just simply knew the president. And so he was like, I'll you know, do this. And then he bought off various senators and put them in place and so on. But I think that he has that kind of not white nationalist kind of, um, you know, waving a swastika kind of thing going for him. But he has that kind of American patrician hardness. We are the greatest country on the earth and we are going to do this thing. And we are like, the reason why we're, the great, we're so great is because of our military might. It's because of our kind of like our, our hard christian values it's because of all these things so i don't think he's going to be a white nationalist in that kind of like marching in the streets kind of way i don't think he's going to inspire it either really like trump did 
but he will be absolutely firmly committed, I think, to um, what are essentially a collection of governmental far-right politics without the you know pageantry, perhaps. I don't know. But I think he's going to be equally as committed, if not significantly more ideologically committed than Trump turned out to be. Yeah, I think... Uh... I think that's a, a good analysis, a harrowing one, <laughs> to be sure. Um, but I think I think you might be spot on there. Um, I, I wanted to ask y'all. You know, one of the things that has uh, interested me as I've you know engaged in anti-fascist organizing and and um, followed far right like reactionary politics um, is that like you know the left has this issue where we fight over our our ideological positions right that's the thing that is is the most fractitious about the left right um and you know the three of us are are anti-statists we're on an anarchist podcast network but like there are wide wide divergences in um political theory on the left right but what's so interesting to me is that the far right generally agree on most of the stuff, which is to say it's it's mostly feeling, it's it's aesthetics. They don't like agree on everything, but like they it's the general side of sort of consensus. At least this is the impression that I get. And what they end up fighting over is who's going to be the leader rather than like what's the 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 ideological through line or what's the 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 right um what's the right kind of uh, party line? It, instead of arguing over that, they're instead arguing over who is going to be the, the, the person who leads this group, right? Um, and I think that that might be because of the fact that they, they fetishize authority so much and, and venerate um, the, the, the strong man, the cult of personality. And I'm curious if y'all agree with that an analysis, if you think there's any merit to that. Um, and, 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 and if so, like, how those things balance each other out because you know so often right we hear and and i don't want to be reductive but so often right we hear like the far right compared to the far left um and a lot of, a lot of times that's very spurious and and silly and inaccurate but then in other ways there are like these really striking parallels that i think are um worthy of consideration and uh, and and critical inquiry especially um as we want to um shield our politics from being aped by the far right, because we know that fascists do this, right? Historically, that's been the case um, time and time and time again, right? Is that the far right uh, takes um, and bastardizes and perverts left politics and, and uses it for their own uh, nefarious gains. And so, yeah, I, I, that's a lot of words to throw at y'all, but I, I'm curious if you think there's like that, that, like that is the thing that divides the far right is the fight over who is going to be the leader, who's going to be the cult of personality. And if that has an analog to like the left's infighting over like this, we need to be this type of anti-status. No, we need to actually seize the state power. You know, that type of traditional um, fracturing of, of the left. So quickly on the, on the, on the far right, far left thing. I think we, we actually talk about this in, well, it will be when this podcast goes out, it'll be last week's podcast. Um, or a couple of weeks ago, whenever, a past podcast about feelings uh, that we had. And what kind of... It's, it, we have to be very careful, obviously, because there is very little overlap between the far left and the far right, and we need to push, be really clear about that. But what is in common, and, and Sam said this really well in, in the episode, is a, a, a deep feeling of... Um, I'm sorry, I'm stealing your, your shit right now. No, it's not, <laughs> I, should, I just, just, just point out, listeners, that Alex disagreed with me about this point on the episode. So I'm glad he's come around to the truth, you know? 
we could when we were recording this it was only yesterday when we recorded this so you know i'm, I'm flighty you know i can't help myself but what they share is a, a sense of deep that the, the world is deep there's something deeply wrong with the world there's a wrongness to it the world the world is broken we can't accept it like it is we need to change it and obviously the prescriptions and the Desired outcomes are completely different. The far right want, uh, you know, traditional um, patriarchal family structures and patriarchy in general in society. They want uh, white supremacy. They want a kind of rigidified class structure which keeps the rich uh, even more in power, capital even stronger. And the left want essentially the opposite of all of that. Um, just on the, I think Sam could talk about this a bit more, but just about the the idea that the, the far right is mainly co concerned with leadership. I think we need to really push back against this. Um, if you look, for example, just on the base level between a group like Atomwaffen and a group like um, the militia movements, for example, they're kind of superficially, um, you know, they, they're, they're kind of very interested in guns. Uh, they're very interested in self-organized kind of uh, milit quasi-military formations. But actually their kind of um, political outlook is completely different. Atomwaffen... Um, uh, reject the state of things completely, uh, whereas the militia movements um, are acting in defence of something that was past, acting in defence of the status quo, even. Um, and we can see these kind of tensions and contradictions happening across the far right, and they, I think they are genuinely um, expressions of differences of, of politics. Um, leaving that aside, I think the kind of the position of the leader, or the position of authority of power is really really important to the far to far right politics in general in a, in a way that's not the same in the left in the, on the left it's there the kind of the struggle for power the struggle for agency within movements is is there but it's often unspoken or it's often um yeah unacknowledged um and not explicit in any way whereas with the far right it's explicit it's acknowledged there is a position that you want to hold whether that's in, where you're in conflict with other political tendencies or within your own movement as well. It's very difficult to work out to what extent there are ideological disagreements. Um, and the reason for that is that uh, most of the people we're talking about exist online, um, where communication is saturated in irony, communication is saturated in jokes and so on. Um, and definitely amongst people like um, the Poway's shooter, um, who wrote on Facebook uh, before uh, committing the mass murder they committed um, screw your optics I'm going in and I think from that perspective of that person of that um, murderer obviously it seemed like they were everyone agreed on everything um, but there was actually they were kind of hiding that they agreed with them so they they assumed the power issue to assume that everyone else was just as anti-semitic as they were just as hated users just as much I think um, but was just kind of hiding it or pretending like it wasn't real and I don't know if that's the case um, I'm not saying that as in like I'm kind of hedging my bets I genuinely don't know I have no idea if anti-semitism which is which is I would say like the main kind of like distinguishing mark uh, on the far right are you an anti-semite or not so for example um, Mike Enoch <laughs> He's very obviously an anti-Semite. Whereas even so, but where someone like Trump would like strive very hard not to seem like an anti-Semite. Um, the same is true of, of uh, the distinction between uh, groups on the far right in the UK. Um, you get 
for example, um, Tony Robinson, uh, who Alex mentioned earlier, who's a um, kind of an influencer, uh, and he would he is tries very very hard not to be anti-Semitic, and yet this new group I was talking about, Patriot Alternative, are very obviously anti-Semitic, and in some sense, like that's the dividing line between them. So what does what does anti-Semitism tell you about someone? Firstly, it tells you that they're <laughs> an appalling person, but it also tells you that they have an understanding of the world that is genuinely quite structural and quite well developed because what Alex was saying earlier I think is really important um, about the sense of wrongness and the anti-Semitism he's nodding because uh, <laughs> I'm praising him for quoting me <laughs> <laughs> I'll take it I'll take it whenever I, whenever I come from you Sam I'll take it <laughs> what, what, I think what anti-Semitism generally marks out is a much more broad and structurally informed view of the world. Not that anti-Semitism is true, it's obviously false. But it, it marks out a kind of um, a total scope of, of, of view. The whole world is somehow wrong. And if you want the whole world to be wrong, or if you believe the whole world is wrong, and all the things that appear within it are all somehow kind of like um, the wrong things, and they're the wrong things because there's some evil people out there, then traditionally, uh, anti-Semitism has been that, that the conspiracy that has the totalizing scope. Whereas Islamophobia, which is much more common in the British far right, doesn't require you to have some any kind of world's you know, um, governing system. It doesn't require you to have this kind of total conspiracy. Uh, all it requires is that you just think, you know, um, Muslims are different from us, or like, and they're different in a way that's like f f profound, and they cannot be assimilated and so on. So it has ridiculous beliefs, but it doesn't have this kind of same kind of totalizing scope. And so I would say if there is a f dividing line between groups on the far right, it's mostly around anti-Semitism, at least on the British far right. Um, yeah, so I'd say there are these distinctions of ideology. But, as I said before, irony on the internet makes it really difficult to understand whether or not the expression of those differences is real, or it's just responding to the generalised ban, at least in British culture, I don't know how it is in America, at least in British culture, against anti-Semitism and anti-black racism. Yeah, even the BMP, who were obviously racist, <laughs> were like, we are not a racist party. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean, the Republicans say the same thing, you know, like, even though, like, their entire um, yeah, yeah. platform is built upon white supremacy, like, they would say that they're not racist, right? Absolutely, yeah. Certainly, they wouldn't use the word anti-racist, but they would say that they're not racist, right? Yeah. And and um, I, I worded that question poorly. I was kind of spitballing. I, I, I didn't mean to, like... Um, a race, I wouldn't say the rich, but the diversity of thought on, on the right. Like, I, I'm not trying to insinuate that there are not, like, ideological demarcations. I, it's just, it's something that's always fascinated me is that more, to, and again, maybe this is an erroneous um, observation, and, and, and I can own that, but it's always seemed to me that, like, the rifts tend to be over who should who should lead rather than because like they can it seems to me that they're willing they're much more willing and able than the left to set aside those ideological differences uh and, and just true. like yeah. you know go with okay well this person has a lot of power right now or they have a lot of social capital so i'm going to like bandwagon on with them whereas uh you know committed leftists would be like okay like yes this person has a lot of um you know social capital right now but i find their politics reprehensible so i'm not going to fuck with them you know like th that's something to me 
that that I think is a really interesting um, cognitive dissonance that 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 reactionaries tend to have is that uh, for them, right, uh, ideological uh, difference and distinction can be paved over if it means Im immediate gains in the in the short term. That's absolutely true, and that's really really central to the alt right and the story of the alt right, and also the story of its failure uh, and its falling apart. Um, under the sign of Trump, as because it was obvious that Trump was going to be the leader, like he was, he was a presidential candidate. It wasn't going to be Richard Spencer leading it. It wasn't going to be you know Steve Bannon leading it. It was going to be Trump, definitely, it had to be. Um, some of those tensions that you're talking about, which are real, totally real tensions between people who are vying for power, could be temporarily suspended, and in doing so, also at the same time as you're saying, ideological differences were suspended. So you've got people who are not anti-Semites, people who are anti-Semites, you've got people who believe in, uh, you know, space aliens, people who are totally got <laughs> a materialist analysis of society, people who are like, you know, all these kind of different groups came together in the alt-right, people who were traditional Catholics, people who have, were pagans, people who were, um, like, uh, really into terrorism, or people who were really into, like, spree shooters. You know, all these people came together in the alt-right, and then when it kind of faltered in, like, mid to late 2017, they didn't have any common ground anymore because the common ground was the power. The common ground was the ability to manipulate public opinion, and the common ground was to submit themselves to some extent to Trump. So as soon as Trump was like, oh, I don't need you anymore, they definitely shifted away from having that kind of um, coherence. Do you think that was triggered by Charlottesville? I think it was triggered by Charlottesville, and then it was triggered by the, the firing of Steve Bannon. Mm -hmm. And then I think the final blow was the El Paso shootings. That happens, obviously, significantly later. Um, and at that point, everything is just kind of washed away, not in the sense that, you know, in the sense that it was washed down into the gutter, like to go somewhere else. Um, we don't know where it's gone yet, but I think it's, it's not that it's washed away and it's kind of disappeared. It's just somewhere else, in the same way that the sewage is somewhere else when you flush the loo. It's simmering. I like I like how you uh, pointed directly to that metaphor, right? Like the... <laughs> The shit you flushed down the loo is gonna be still somewhere else. It was very graphic. I appreciate that. Thank you. <laughs> I mean, it's it's an apt analogy. I mean, we are talking about fascists here, so like you know, it checks out. Well, listen, but before we part ways, I, I know y'all are also working on another book, The Rise of Ecofascism, and I was wondering if you could give uh, Coffee with Comrades listeners a bit of a, a sneak preview, an elevator pitch, if you will. What what's the book's main thesis? What are you trying to accomplish with with, uh, this particular text um so we we actually just submitted it last week so we're oh that's awesome congratulations thank you um it's it was a it was a whole thing uh, <laughs> basically i suppose what we're trying to do in the book is 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 trace the, the, the book happens in three parts really we're tracing for the first part we're tracing a kind of history of like what we call far-right ecologism and we, we we kind of start that in the kind of uh, in colonialism and the kind of the demarcation between um, uh, in, indigenous savage life and civilized white life and how you know that divide is constructed uh, we go through the eugenics movement we go through the nazis um, all all the way tracing and then on through the european new right and um, the kind of american anti-immigration tanton network movement uh, network not a movement it was yeah very specifically constructed and it wasn't a movement um and, and what we're trying to, tr to tease out in, in this history is different conceptions, reactionary conceptions of nature. Um, how they are thought about, how they're, um, 
how they're kind of used and utilised, how they're constructed. And what we then do is, in the second part of the book, is is how, how these conceptual natures are employed in the present day amongst parties, amongst movements, and amongst um, the kind of deadly, perpetrators of deadly violence, far-right terrorists, whatever you want to call them. We kind of have a look, close look at the uh, Christchurch Judas Manifesto, for example, and, and discuss the base, things like this. And then in the, in the third part of the book, and I think are uh, like the strongest bit of the book, not that it's all a strong book, but like this is the bit I, I'm particularly proud about, we look to the future, we speculate on um, some possible futures of, of far-right environmentalism, far-right ecologism, as we you know, go, off, go on to this century of climate crisis collapse, um, looking at various things, the possibility of an Elon Musk style um, stealing the lithium from South America um, thing, which is basically already happening. Um, look at the kind of the uh, rigification of the fossil fossil fuel extraction capital slash politics thing that's developing. And um, we kind of examine various crises that are probably definitely going to happen and how these futures will react to it. And in the conclusion, obviously, we want to end things in a positive light. We talk about what kind of liberatory ideas of nature um, we, can, we can construct on the left and on the radical left uh, in order to kind of counter these reactionary natures. What kind of um, natures of liberation or ecologies of liberation can we construct to oppose ecologies of domination, um, which is ultimately um, what we're all inevitably, the anti-fascist movement, the radical left, basically anyone who cares about the world and survival and the people who work on it uh, are going to have to be contending with this very immediate issue in the next decade. That's a fantastic summary. I, I, I would add just one thing, which is that Alex absolutely does not believe that Elon Musk had anything to do with the coup in Bolivia. I would, I would just add that. Um, neither of us believe that. We don't think it's true. Although I would point out that the Bolivian president who was recently elected did say that he thought that Elon Musk had probably triggered the coup in Bolivia um, over the lithium mines there, which of course are needed to produce the batteries for Tesla cars. Um, but absolutely, Alex does not believe that, and I do not believe that. In fact, we, we, we think that the Bolivian president is wrong about that. So just, just for clarity, just for <laughs> good legal clarity. <laughs> <laughs> I appreciate that. Um, yeah, for sure, covering all of our bases. I guess I guess that's uh that that's a that's a wrap, y'all. Um, Thank you very much. I, 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 I'm really glad that we were able to do this. Um, I, it's been uh it's been fun. Um, it's always fun to collaborate with CZN comrades, and and um, I feel like I've been like slowly making the rounds to try to like talk to everyone on the network and have have at least one episode with everyone on the network. So it was a uh, it was only a matter of time, but I'm glad that it could be you know to commemorate um, this this new book that y'all have have put together the the post internet far right. Um, and speaking of which, where can listeners go to pick up a copy of the post internet far right? I understand that it is uh, currently in the process of being crowdfunded. Um, where can folks go to support that? It definitely is being crowdfunded, but I think crowdfunding is a slightly misleading kind of term. It's being pre you can pre-order it. So it's not like okay. you're kind of giving us something and then you don't get anything back. You get the book. So you're just buying the book. You're just buying the book <laughs> in advance. <laughs> so um, that's that. I mean, we'll, I guess we can send you a link. Um, it's a, I could read you out the URL. But that's oh, not, I have, not I, I have it. Okay. I, I, I have the link and it will be in the show notes. I just didn't know if there was an easier way to like, cause it is just like, 
it is kind of like a link with like ones and zeros and numbers and shit. I, so I think good. you could you could, <laughs> you could go easy. to either our Twitter account, um, which is at Twelve Rules for What, or you could go to our publisher's Twitter account at Dog Section Press, and they've been tweeting about it a lot, and we also tweet. Uh, so, and it'll be in the show notes for for this episode. So if you know if listeners want to find it there, they totally can. Twelve Rules for What is obviously I suspect on all the major oh, yeah. podcasting platforms. Oh, yeah. Uh, so if folks want to check out your podcast work, if they're, uh, not the type of nerds that want to read books, but are the type of nerds that want to listen to podcasts, they can check out your podcast wherever they get podcasts. I should say there will be a, um, an audio version of the book as well. Maybe audio. Oh, fuck yeah. That's really cool. That's really, really neat. Are you guys like, like reading it out yourselves? Only Sam's going to read it out because he's got the, the, you know, the, the good voice. The PR, the PR. The, uh, <laughs> the RP, rather. You have the, uh, you have the, you have the, uh, the NPR, like, uh, exactly. radio that's cast. He's got the radio voice, voice and I, yeah. I'm way too provincial for that. That's, that's an obscure reference, Alec. You've got a... Uh, <laughs> no Britishisms, please. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> thank you very much for doing this. Oh, this my great. God. Yeah, for sure. And and if folks are listening to this um, in y'all's feed, um, Coffee with Comrades uh, is also available wherever y'all get your podcasts. Um, so you can check us out there. Um, yeah, I, this has been been delightful. I think this book is really urgent. I had a blast reading it. It's really approachable um, and like written in a way that I think um, anyone who's interested in anti-fascism and interested in, in sort of how the far right uh is constituting and reconstituting itself um, can pick can pick up and read and, and appreciate and and get a quick grasp on. Um, it's it's always nice reading stuff that is w- clearly like well researched and thoughtful and like you know performing like robust materialist analysis that is also still not like boring scholarly shitty like not fun reading. So like k- kudos on that. Our second book is full of boring scholarly, you know. Kind of <laughs> so we, we, we kind of, you know, we, we have to do one book that was good and one book that wasn't. So, you know, uh, <laughs> this is fortunately the book that's good. And there's also some dope art in it. Uh, before oh, we, yeah. But, yeah, yeah. Uh, before I, but before, is that just from Dog Section Press? Is that uh, those folks? Because I know they design like a magazine and are big on graphic design and stuff. Is that just their like handiwork? They they have a they 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 actually got a guy to do it. Uh, some very good illustrator. I think he's called. Um, he's at Twitter. He's at Want Some Studio. Okay. Um, and he has. I don't know how they got him. Um, I'm, I presume it's on a reduced rate to his usual one because he he does art for much bigger and much like more commercial things than our little book. But he. You know, it's, it's kind of the ideal thing. I was a bit concerned about the illustrations, to be honest, because I was like, how are you going to illustrate this uh, this horrific text, or at least horrific, right. <laughs> horrific subject matter? But he's, right. he's approached, he's, re- he's read the book, he's picked out very, like, interesting and, like, quite important images that we've used in the mm-hmm. book, and he's illustrated them and in a, in a way which I think has ad- really added to the text. So, yeah, I'm really... Shout out to that guy who... Your name is... I've forgotten your name right now, but shout out to you. <laughs> shout out to you, uh, pal. No, I mean, you're definitely right. It, there's always the danger, right, of, like, showing fascist iconography, you know, and, like, where's the line between how do you depict it in a way that is um, palatable is the wrong word, but but doesn't, like, uh, fantastic, like, make, like, make it fantastic, you know? Because, like, you know, 
fascists to their credit are very good at aping uh you know cool iconography and then perverting it and using it for terrible stuff like say what you will about uh the national socialist party their iconography is very striking like aesthetically it's very very striking and fascists historically have been pretty good at that sort of thing and so it's always it's always i think this this tightrope walk especially for artists and digital designers who are like trying to do the balancing act, you know, between like showing what, uh, like what the content is, but without glorifying it or edifying it and like, um, making it something that is still sickening, but also still somehow aesthetically pleasing for like the right audience. I, does that make sense? Right, it makes <laughs> total it's, sense. It's and thing, yeah. the, the, the one, the, the image that I probably would have had a problem with if it wasn't done the way it was, is the, the image of the, the kind of, uh, the, 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 the wolf, with the with the gun staring down the camera with a, like a wolf head looking down, and mm-hmm. what what subverts it, of course is these all these like little eyes in the background which give it a very creepy vibe and not like a very appealing. But if you just have this kind of wolf character with a massive gun, that's inherently a cool like wolves are cool, guns are yeah, cool. Yeah, that's, you know I mean? that's fucking rad. <laughs> like cool. that's just so that's you've, badass. <laughs> you've got to be really careful about this stuff. I totally, think. yeah, totally, totally. Um, well, this has been a blast, y'all. Uh, we'll have to do it again sometime in the near future because um, it's it's been just super fun chatting with y'all. Thank you so much. We will. Yes. Yeah, uh, happy to see you again, Spacey. It's been really good. Cheers. Bye. And that about does it for this week's episode of Coffee with Comrades. This is an entirely DIY show run by workers for workers. If you like what you hear, you can follow us on Twitter at CoffeeWComrades and Instagram at CoffeeWithComrades. Check out our website, www.coffeewithcomrades.com, and sign up to support our work with a monthly contribution by going to www.patreon.com forward slash coffeewithcomrades. You can find Coffee with Comrades on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Play, wherever you go to get your anti-capitalist propaganda. Be sure to subscribe so you never miss an episode. While you're there smashing that subscribe button, be sure to rate and review the show as well to help us increase our reach. If you have feedback, criticism, or you'd just like to get in touch with us, shoot us an email at coffeewithcomrades at gmail.com. Until next time, stay wild out there.